Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 186th video cast, 176th podcast for the week ending May 11th, 2023. We'll do a quick few photos from San Diego. We were out there for uh, my daughter Annabelle's first water polo tournament, and this is her first goal in a water polo tournament. Uh, so let's check this out pretty exciting and I think what's more exciting is she has the exact same cheer as I did when I played hockey. <laughs> uh, understated is not part of her repertoire. This is, uh, we went to iFly which is uh, this place where you skydive indoors. They train Navy SEALs in San Diego. That's uh, Annabelle and then we've got a few more. Right there, there, okay. And more water polo pictures. That's Mimi also flying. Pretty exciting. Second one of Mimi. Then we've got, let's see here, some more pictures real quick. And then we'll get right down to it. But a lot of people give me feedback that they love these, so uh, we'll keep them going. We've got a uh, picture here. of Mimi and Annabelle at the pool, then the four of us at Harbor Point in San Diego, um, those of you who from San Diego, so that's the Pacific Coast right there, and then you've got Annabelle and on to the next. So our quote of the week is, time is on your side when you own shares of superior companies. The what Peter Lynch is trying to say here is the underlying business gets better while the stock price does what it does. And sooner or later, the stock price has to catch up with the underlying fundamentals. And we're going to talk about that today. Uh, first, we'll go into some of the media so we can get the overview of the general market, inflation, Fed, all the things that have been happening, emerging markets overview. I want to thank from CNBC Closing Bell Indonesia. I was on this morning. I was up at like I woke up at like 2.45 in the morning. I didn't have to go out until 5.30, but uh, for some reason I woke up early. Uh, anyway, want to thank the producer Saifa and Ade Nural Safrina for having me on the show. We're going to listen to that one right now. Akan berbicara langsung dengan Thomas J. Hayes, Chairman and Managing Partner of Great Hill Capital. How are you, Thomas? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Safrina. It's good to have you back again in CNBC Indonesia. So a slide of good news. Inflation in the United States finally reached a 4.9% year-on-year after such aggressive hike of Fed fund rate. Do you think this is as predicted? And do you think the high interest rate of the Fed fund rate is being effective to tackle the high inflation rate? Yeah, there's no question where it's being effective, Safrina. The uh, headline inflation number is down from 9.1% to 4.9%, which was certainly better than expected. But I think the most important number in this report was the shelter number, uh, because month on month, shelter rose just four tenths of 1% compared to the previous month, which was six tenths of 1% compared to the month before that, which yeah. was eight tenths of 1%. This is a major factor in the CPI, a major weighting in the CPI. And the fact that this metric has 
started to roll over is very, very important because that, that means in coming months, due to the base effects of a year ago, we're going to see a steep, steep drop in inflation moving forward. Uh, and moving on from the high interest rate, do you think after, you know, this has been a great success, the inflation rate has been plummet to 4-9%, do you think, and also do you also see the terminal rate will be around 5.5% or 5.75%? The market has already speculated about the terminal rate of Fed fund rate. Have you already seen it? How about 5.10%, right where we are right now? As a matter of fact, yesterday, the stock market was declining midday. The Dow Jones was down about 300 points. And at 2 p.m., there was an article in the Wall Street Journal by Nick Timoreos, who is Mm -hmm. known as the Fed Whisperer, meaning has direct contact with the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. And he said that it's likely they're going to take a pause over the summer as they weigh the banking stress and they weigh the impact of their previous tightening. So I think we're done. And as a matter of fact, as you look through the different components of the CPI report yesterday, now 40 percent of those components are actually in deflation, not inflation. So Mm. with the most stubborn one, which finally started to come down because leases work on a 12-month lag, which is shelter and owner's equivalent rent, I think we're going to see it continue to come down, the lagged effect. And uh, because we saw Timoreos publish that, more likely than not, what Jay Powell referenced in his Mm -hmm. press conference last week, where where he said we may be at that level, and then Timoreos confirming it in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, uh, bodes very well that uh, they could, in fact, pause here for some time. If they need to go back in a few months, if the data doesn't come down, they'll do that. But I think we're going to see the data come down materially, uh, in which case they're done at this 5.10, which was their last published terminal rate. So it's great that the Fed whispers say that they're going to take the break uh, around this summer. But eventually we're going to see the data. 4.9% is still far away from the 2% as the Fed fund, uh, the Federal Reserve target. And on the other hand, if we see the data from the payroll, it's still quite high in around 253,000 compared to the consensus, which is around 180,000. What do you think about it? Well, I think this uh, bodes well for the soft landing scenario where you have uh, jobs are still good, but the excess savings is coming down now. It's only $500 billion down from a trillion and a half. So more and more people as they spend down their savings are going back to work which is very important, the labor force participation rate, which came out last Friday, was at 62.5%. That's been steadily moving up over the months. And what that means is is more supply of labor is coming into the market, which means wages will stop going up. They don't have to go, mm. go up so much to attract labor. And that's going to offset uh, the increase in inflation while at the same time putting more people back to work. And that does create the perfect scenario of a soft landing, provided yeah. the Fed does, in fact, stop at these levels, uh, as, as we yeah. were referencing. The soft in, landing in the, in the scenario is, is even more, uh, even clearer uh, after this. And as you see the moving numbers, the dyma- dynamics going into the right direction, when are we going to see the inflation rate in the U.S. will ultimately reach the 2% target? Not for a long time. (laughs) So the idea of uh, setting a target of 2%, which is unachievable in the short term, is the objective is to pin 
long-term inflation expectations. That's very important for consumer behavior because you don't want a wage price spiral where people believe prices are going to go up and up and up and they start buying and buying and buying. So they continue to put that target out there over time, they emphasize, which could take three to five years. uh, And that helps people uh, be grounded in the short term and not act irrationally in the short term. What we saw the last time we had debt to GDP of 120 percent was post-World War II. They let inflation run above trend about three to five percent for three to five years over that period. And it slowly came down and we we inflated away some of our, our debt exposure. So we're going to really, really see that coming, hopefully. And moving on to another issue about the debt default, uh, Thomas, how do you actually see the potential for strengthening in the U.S. capital market amid so many threat of debt default and also shocks in the banking sector? Because as previously before, we already know that Minister of Finance Janet Yellen already said that the United States will have some sort of risk of default in the first June of 2023. Yeah, the U.S. will not default. The U.S. will never default. Uh, They will raise the debt limit once again. They've raised the debt limit 102 times since World War II. This is just one more feather in the cap of climbing the wall of worry. The market wants to push higher. Uh, First, the market was afraid of the jobs report. Well, the jobs report came in better than expected. Then they were afraid of the Fed meeting, and uh, Jay Powell came out and basically said we may be at the level and effectively paused. Then we were worried about inflation. Inflation came in better than expected. Now we have to worry about the debt ceiling for the next two weeks until they finally uh, raise the limit and kick the can down the road. So all of those things are happening. But the most important thing, Safrina, in the background is earnings are coming in much better than expected. Uh, They came in at negative uh, 2% so far with 85% reported as opposed to expectations on March 31st were negative 6.7%. So for the first time in many months, earnings estimates for next year have actually started to turn back up again. And the market is going to start to look at that in coming weeks and months and start to discount the earnings recovery for 2024. Right. Right, Thomas. And as we know, on Tuesday, Joe Biden and the House and Senate leaders of both parties, Republican and Democrats, also met to discuss the impending economic crisis of their own making. So what do you think is the final decision? It's the debt ceiling is going to raise or what's what's what what's going to happen? It's going to be the same decision as the last 102 times they raised the debt limit since World War II. They're going to raise it once again, uh, and they're going to squabble down to the last minute, and you'll see some volatility. Hopefully, they'll be a little bit more productive this time and maybe not not take it down to the wire and actually be constructive and do their jobs, but uh, we won't hold our breath. Ultimately, we know the outcome. The question is how much volatility between now and then. And if you said there are no worries, what are actually the sentiments that is being caused to the market because of this crisis of, yes, we're going to hide the debt ceiling or not? Or is this just a drama between both political parties? It's just a drama. It's a normal process. (laughs) The Republicans want to reduce the spending. The Democrats want to uh, continue the spending. Uh, This has been going on for uh, 250 some odd years. Uh, This will never change. And they'll continue to raise the debt limit over and over. I mean, you may get some spending cuts at the margins. There may be some negotiation at the margins. There may be some volatility in the short term. But ultimately, it gets raised. And uh, that will be one more box that we check in the wall of worry so the market can push higher. 
And about the level of debt to GDP ratio in the United States, which is around 139% to the GDP, is it still a healthy level, Thomas? Uh, it's not, but the solution for that is the same thing that we did after World War II uh, when debt to GDP was 120%. We borrowed to fight a visible enemy back then. This time we borrowed to fight an invisible enemy in COVID. Uh, and what they'll do is they'll run inflation above trend. Uh, they'll continue to say we want to get to 2%, but mm -hmm. in reality they have to keep inflation at 3% to 5% in order to bring down the debt. And what happened from 1948 to 1953, right. the last time we had this problem, they ran inflation above trend and actually the debt to GDP ratio, uh, they grew their way out of it and it dropped from 120% down to 63% in just over a handful of years. And I think if they follow that playbook once again, right. I do think we can grow our way out of this and in a handful of years have uh, debt to GDP at more normalized levels. Right, we are hoping so. And lastly, Thomas, how do you think all these economic dynamics will impact the emerging markets like Indonesia? Well, I think it's a very, very promising time for emerging markets because as the Fed has finished their tightening cycle, the dollar will weaken. And these are historically those times when emerging markets dramatically outperform. If you look at the last 10 years, the S&P 500 has uh, returned about 12.09% uh, annualized, whereas the emerging markets has only returned 1.8%. That was following a 480% rally in emerging markets from 2001 to 2007. So I think now with the dollar weakening, with the Fed ending the tightening cycle, with the demographics, uh, with everything else happening, I do think we're going to see a period for the next three to five years of dramatic outperformance in the emerging markets. And as you know, China and right. Taiwan make up about 45% of the index. And uh, they're after three years of anemic growth, they're going to grow earnings at 18.5% this year, 14.5% next year. And they're trading at just over 10 times earnings versus the S&P, which is trading at 18 times. So I think the relative value is there in emerging markets, certainly in Indonesia as well. And I think the future is very, very bright for emerging market investors. We're hoping so for the emerging markets. We're having a good future. And lastly, probably, Thomas, it is actually still unclear whether the era of high interest rate and all these dynamics, whether the debt ceiling, the, the, de the dollarization and so on, has an impact on the psychology of investors, especially in high-risk investment instruments such as the equity and capital market. Do you think it is still a perspective to invest on equities? I think this is, there's, uh, this is a great time to invest in equities. You, you've basically had in the S&P 500, you've had no progress. Not only is the price the same as 12 months ago, it's the same as 24 months ago. So we've been digesting the post-pandemic gains for over two years now. Uh, these uh, the earnings estimates are starting to go up. I think the only thing that's changed is two years ago, you could make money investing in growth companies that had no earnings and no cash flow right. because money was free. Moving forward, you're going to have to be in businesses that are earning money, generating cash and growing earnings. And if you stick to those solid companies that are growing and generating income, uh, you're going to do extremely well in the ne next phase of the bull market. 
Right, Thomas. So safe to say we should not worry too much, right? So thank you so much for being here in CNBC Indonesia. Always great to have you. It's in closing bell, CNBC Indonesia. A pleasure. Thank you, Safrina. And we're back. Uh, moving on, I want to thank uh, Mike Larson over at The Money Show. I'm going to be speaking at The Money Show on August 8th in Las Vegas. They're holding a conference called the Invest- Investment Masters Symposium from August 8th to 10th at Paris, Las Vegas. Uh, they, I'll play golf on Monday, so if there are any decent golfers that want to play that are coming to this uh, or going to be in Vegas, just hit me up. I, I think my tee time is for 12 o'clock on Monday. Um, also, which is uh, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Um, so you can click here to get all the details. You can see uh, Charles Payne is going to be one of the, the keynote speakers, uh, as well as is Tom Lee from Fun, Funstrat. Um, also another buddy, Kenny Polcari is going to be talking. So a lot to see here. Definitely check that out. We're going to listen to the brief interview with Mike who runs the money show over there. He's the chief editor and a senior uh, VP over there. Quick interview and a little bit of overview of what I'm going to be covering. Listen here. Welcome to our latest video chat in the money show expert interview series. I'm Mike Larson, Editor-in-Chief at Money Show, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Tom Hayes, founder and managing member at Great Hill Capital LLC. Tom, I appreciate you taking some time out to chat with me today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Right. You know, given the news we got on the inflation front this morning as we record this, I can't help but start there. Uh, What do you think about the trend in CPI, uh, and what implications do you see for the Fed and Fed policy this year? Well, it's a big deal. Uh, This was a very important report. Expectations were that it was going to come in hotter than expected, and it actually came in cooler. We've got a four handle in front of headline at 4.9% year on year. So that's very promising. But I do think the biggest number was the owner's equivalent rent and shelter costs, which are starting to come down. They finally peaked. Uh, they're really coming down on a month-on-month basis, and on a year-on-year basis, they're starting to to slip down as well. And that's a major component of CPI. And what we're going to see with the 12-month lag on the leases is that those are going to start to drop more abruptly in coming months, uh, and that's going to give the Fed a lot of cover to actually move ahead with the pause that they implied at the last uh, press conference. Got it. Well. You know, how does this fit into your overall market view for the next few months, the next couple of quarters? I mean, you know, I've had a range of guests, some who are are kind of bearish on the outlook for 2023, some who are a lot more constructive. Kind of in that spectrum, where do you fall? Well, we saw earnings come in, Mike. Uh, This quarter, estimates were on March 31st were that they would decline by 6.7%. They're actually, with 85% of the uh, companies having reported, down 2.2%. And estimates for the first time in months have actually started to move the other direction, meaning up, not down. (laughs) So uh, while everyone's been very, very skeptical about the markets, uh, you are seeing 2024 estimates still hovering around $246 to $250 for the S&P. And with them now moving in the upward direction, those might not be as unreal. They might be more realistic than people are estimating. And if that's the case, we know the market is a discounting mechanism. So just as 
The stock market discounted the weakness we saw in Q1 and are expected to see in Q2. Last year, with a 27% peak to trough correction in the S&P 500, I think as we move out here in the, in the coming weeks and, and couple of months, the market's going to start to look ahead towards 2024 recovery, uh, and, and we may actually find a bid in the market, which is very constructive when you consider earnings going up, inflation going down, Fed being on pause, uh, that, that, that's a formula for good things to happen. Got it. Well, Tom, you provide a wealth of information on the website you founded, hedgefundtips.com. So first, anyone watching, be sure to check that out. Um, but second, I saw the quote of the day you posted there earlier this week was from Charlie Munger from Berkshire Hathaway. And he said, the number one rule of fishing is to fish where the fish are. So you know, kind of keying off that, you know, what do you like about that quote? And where do you think the biggest fish, so to speak, are in this market? Yeah, I think the fish are where the valuations are lowest and the growth is highest. And we've seen this in other tightening cycles, but the one area that's really been left for dead that no one wants to touch, that's going to represent a huge opportunity in in the next 12 to 24 months, which we're going to talk about at the Money Show in August, is going to be emerging markets. And if you just look at emerging markets, there's a mean reversion trade in the making uh, the 10-year annual performance, uh, average performance was 1.8% for the emerging markets, which is uh, anemic, versus the S&P 500 at 12.06. Now, that comes after a 480% return that emerging markets had from 2001 to 2007. So what do we need to happen in order for emerging markets to get bid? Number one, we need the dollar to, to remain subdued and start going down. So we saw the dollar peak in October. It's been coming down. What's happened? Emerging markets have been going up. Uh, and we see earnings growth uh, after three years on average of mid-single-digit earnings growth. Uh, for China, which is the heaviest weight in the emerging markets, it's now uh, projected to be 18.5% for this year and 14.5% for next year. So we think that's going to be a trend for the next 12, 12 to 24 months, and we'll go into that in detail. Got it. Got it. You know, just to put my sort of, I wouldn't call it gloom and doom, but maybe cautious hat on. I mean, you had another quote from, from Peter Lynch of Fidelity warning that stock market declines almost always accompany recession. So, and then at the same time, you've got, you know, this banking sector issue looming in the background. A lot of people talking about commercial real estate exposure and so on. What is your take on those risks? Do you think they're overstated? Uh, do you think that, that we can get all past that in general? I mean, I just kind of curious as to what you'd have to say on that. Yeah, well, we did have a technical recession last year, uh, and you had a correction to accompany it. So the first two quarters of, of 2022, you did have negative GDP growth. Uh, so, so we have that kind of in the rearview mirror. Commercial real estate, Moody's did a study uh, on the impact to banks' balance sheets, and it's much lower than people could possibly anticipate. Right now, the market is trading as if uh, commercial real estate is going to overwhelm the balance sheets. But I think when all is said and done, it's a maximum exposure of 8%. And that's if all commercial properties drop by 40%, uh, which is certainly not going to be the case because as the labor market uh, loosens up, more and more people are going back to the office uh, to get FaceTime and to be part of the community. Because what they're finding is that on average, the the bulk of the layoffs have been with the remote workers, not the ones that are coming into the office. So I do think that the commercial real estate is overestimated. I do think we had the, the recession in the rearview mirror. And it's not out, out of the question that we couldn't have a, a negative quarter or two quarters of GDP growth before the recovery next year as the lagged effect of the tightening. But I do think we, we did a 
decent job of pricing a lot of that in in the third and fourth quarter of last year. So we remain open-minded. We, we will change if the data changes. But for now, we are in the soft landing camp, and we do think earnings are going to reaccelerate. Got it. Well, you gave a little bit of a sneak peek there, what you're going to be talking about uh, this August in Las Vegas at the Investment Masters Symposium, um, emerging markets, opportunities there versus domestic. Uh, Anything else you'd want to add and anything maybe on the flip side that you're cautious about for the remainder of the year? Yeah, I think your biggest risk for the remainder of the year after we get through the debt ceiling uh, in the next few weeks is really going to be the Fed making the mistake of overdoing it. Uh, The Fed has two tools at their disposal. One is balance sheet runoff, which they've uh, not used quite as much as as they potentially could have to drain liquidity. And the other is the Fed funds rate and uh, and overhiking. And I think they've used more of that than they probably needed to. So I think moving forward, what we want to see is a situation where the economy can handle the hikes that are already in place, 500 plus basis points in, in about a year, uh, and that the Fed takes the signal from the market with the deterioration in, in some of the regional banks, uh, with things starting to break. And they say, let's leave it here and see how things work through the system. If they have to cut once or twice, they can do that. I don't anticipate they'll have to. I think if they pause now, uh, it's the perfect situation, kind of a Goldilocks scenario where they can keep rates elevated to continue cooling things. And at the same time, the economy can press forward. But the real risk is if they do one or two more uh, unnecessary cuts, and that could just be uh, the straw that breaks the camel's back. So we're, we're betting on the Fed here to be sensible, to be data-driven, uh, and uh, to maybe pause at these levels. Got it. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your insights, and thank you all of you for watching. Um, if you'd like to hear more from Tom and dozens of other top market and economic experts, I do encourage you to check out our upcoming Investment Masters Symposium. It's going to be at the Paris Las Vegas from August 8th to August 10th. Uh, keynote addresses, panel discussions, coffee breaks, cocktail hours, uh, again, with some of the top market experts. Just click the link in the video description below and find out how you can join us. Tom, thanks again for your time. Thanks, Mike. And we're back. So if you want more details, just go to Hedge Fund Tips, click on that, uh, either the picture or the link here, and you can see the whole speaker lineup, the events, and uh, definitely get involved there. And then finally, want to thank Phil Yin for having me on CGT in America last night uh, to discuss all the latest news. Take a listen there. Interest rates have gone up. And nearly a third of Gen Z and millennials say they have no emergency savings. Um, For someone who I know has some emergency savings, uh, Thomas Hayes, founder, chairman, managing member of Great Hill Capital, a long, short equity manager in New York City. I don't know. Maybe you don't have any savings because you live in New York City. Um, But what's your reaction to this uh, latest inflation data? It seems that there there some people are, are painting a more positive picture on it. Well, there's no question, Phil, and thanks for having me. Uh, The biggest news from this report was that shelter rose just four-tenths of 1% compared to six-tenths of 1% last month and eight-tenths of 1% the month before. What we're seeing even year-on-year is down for shelter and year-on-year is down modestly for rent. The reason that's so important is once that peaks, it starts to really roll over aggressively. And I think we're going to see that in coming months. And the reason there's been such a long delay on shelter and owner's equivalent rent is because leases run about 12 months and they're now anniversarying 
on the high, high rent levels that were over 12 months ago. So we're going to see that come down. But the other thing to note, Phil, which most people don't recognize, is 40% of the CPI components right now, as of today, are in deflation, not inflation. So Karina pointed to energy and food is moving in the right direction. New cars are moving in the right direction. But that owner's equivalent rent is really going to start to kick in for the May, June, and July numbers. And I think this headline number is going to continue to come down, which will be very good for the demographic you referenced. And then what happens to, I guess, the economy in that situation? I mean, I remember a time when we actually wanted inflation. Now we're asking for, uh, obviously, prices to come back down. But this might impact how perhaps the Fed and the markets may, may look at consumer spending power. Well, you've got it exactly. As a matter of fact, the Dow was down over 300 points today and actually reversed after about 2 o'clock. The reason it reversed is Nick Temereos of the Wall Street Journal, he's known as the Fed whisperer, kind of the mouthpiece for the Fed, uh, put out an article that said a summer break on hikes appears likely as officials are monitoring banking stress. So they got this CPI number today, uh, and then all of a sudden we get an article at 2 o'clock and things turn around. If the Fed is, in fact, on pause, that's going to alleviate some of the stress on the banks because they won't have the funding cost pressures trying to compete with treasuries, uh, and that will enable them to get back to lending. Right now, there's a big fear in the market that uh, credit extension is going to continue to uh, contract, uh, and that would slow the, the economy dramatically. If the Fed is, in fact, done and that pause is real, as spoken by Nick Timoreos uh, today at 2 o'clock, uh, then we can point to better things to come and the soft landing remains on the table, which will be good for inflation, it will be good for the economy, and it will keep jobs relatively strong. You know what I'm surprised about is, you know, we just reported on how a, a whole generation, maybe two generations of, of young adults have little to no savings, right? And you're talking about these prices that keep going up, yet the savings rate remains low, yet the spending still remains relatively at an elevated level. And I'm wondering... If rates, even if they were to stay exactly here, they still have credit cards, they still have car bills, they still have to buy things and we, they're going to want to finance things. Uh, how are they going to handle a higher interest rate environment with less uh, consumer spending power? Yeah, well, excess savings is certainly dwindling. There was a report by the San Francisco Fed out uh, two days ago that shows it's down to $500 billion. And the, that's the bad news. It's coming down. The good news is it's still high. But what it's causing people to do is actually go back to work. One thing we saw in the jobs report, which was a blowout jobs report, very positive on Friday, uh, was the labor force participation rate was at 62.5%. And as that excess savings gets spent down, more people are going to go back into the workforce. Uh, that's going to cause the economy to grow faster. It's going to put a cap on uh, wage increases, which is going to put, put a cap on inflation and allow us to, to grow conservatively and keep the economy in the soft landing mode so and keep the Fed at bay because the Fed has really been aggressive in the last 12 months. So I think all of these things point to better things to come. You know, the issue of not having emergency savings that we've we've read those articles for many, many years. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think as we get through this soft patch, uh, there are bright, brighter skies ahead. And we're seeing it, by the way, in earnings, which came in for Q1 much better than expected. Negative uh, 2% and change uh, relative to negative 6% and change as of March 31st. So one thing that's changed in the dynamic is actually forward estimates in the last couple of weeks 
have started going up again, not down. And if we look at 2024 at about $245 on the S&P 500, uh, that's not priced in right now with all the positioning and all the negativity in the market. This market wants to continue to climb the wall of worry. We were afraid about uh, jobs. Jobs was better than expected. We were afraid of the Fed. Fed might be on pause. We were afraid of inflation, came in better than expected. Now we're afraid of the debt ceiling. So we'll have to deal with that for the next couple of weeks until they push that down the road. We, we didn't even get a chance to talk about the banks. We'll have to save that for another time. Uh, Thomas Hayes, uh, thank you very much. Save a little, but don't save too much. Keep spending. Thank you. Uh, good to see thank you. Thank you. Uh, in other news. And we're back. Uh, at last, I want to thank Akash Swaram for including me in his Reuters article this week. Also want to thank Meta Singh for including me in her Reuters article today and on to some of the other details. So a couple market information. Pat Gelsinger bought up some stock after earnings last week. He uh, uh, bought another quarter of a million dollars of stock out of his own pocket. So he continues to buy up stock. Uh, so we're co-owners with him. That's a good thing, not just when he's given stock, but when he actually buys it like we do. Uh, Jerome Powell faces the lowest public confidence for a Fed chairman in history. Gallup poll says 36, just 36% say they trust Powell to do the right thing for the economy. Uh, so we're going to find out, you know, he's right at the edge. And if the Timoreos article is right and he pulls this off, meaning he pauses now, uh, he might be get off with going from the worst Fed chairman in the history of the Fed uh, to the best, in, in effect, because he'll pull off a soft landing, will reaccelerate, and everyone will say he was a genius. Uh, alternatively, he could keep going like a moron and crash the economy off the cliff. I don't think he's going to do that, but uh, so far he's he's uh, um, been a wild card, uh, to put it mildly. So uh, while they should have done more with the balance sheet and less with interest rates, they've done what they've done. I think the underlying economy is strong enough if they pause here and hold rates uh, for a little bit, even if they got to do one or two cuts like they did in 1995, we can reaccelerate and take off and uh, and maybe he'll be able to have uh, not the worst legacy in the history of the Fed as he has now, but actually the best his uh, legacy in the history of the Fed, so solving a hard problem partially that he created. But nonetheless, uh, this is the opportunity. We'll see what he does. The bank stock buying spree continues as insiders snap up shares. More people, uh, U.S. Bank Corp. The higher quality ones, you're seeing the insiders go in and buy that. Uh, you know, here's uh, Andy Payne of um, paid $733,000 for Key Corp stock. Some U.S. Bank Corp. We're not buying individuals, but we did on that flush last week buy some uh, long dated options in the money options in KRE just to participate. I think at some point the FDIC is going to have to wake up or the executive branch and say we're going to temporarily backstop deposits for 12 to 24 months until the FDIC can increase the insurance. And once that happens, uh, the shorts are going to get, they're going to lose 100% overnight. They're going to wake up on a Monday morning. Uh, there's going to be some announcement from the executive branch or the FDIC and, uh, you're going to see these things up, you know, 40, 50% as a group overnight. Uh, and, um, you know, but the question is, how long do they sleep at the wheel? How many more banks have to fail before they finally figure out that the genie's out of the bottle and there's only one way to put it back in? That's number one. Number two, 
the Fed will have to uh, pause so that funding costs don't keep going up and banks aren't competing with treasury bills and money markets to keep deposits. And it looks like that may be the case that the Fed uh, has paused, uh, but we, you know, that, that remains to be determined. So those are the two, two things that need to happen. And when that happens, I think some of these regionals will be up, some of them will be up like 60, 70%, but the group will be up 40, 50% very, very quickly. And I think the way to play that is with a basket. Uh, what Goldman Sachs says the really rich are doing with their money right now. Um, the answer is, I don't know why this always logs me out. Um, they're going into hedge funds and PE, uh, all in alternatives. And uh, they're at uh, 44% of their money in alternatives. Uh, so that's a good thing. Google says search enters a new error with controversial con conversational AI features. So everyone thought uh, Google was asleep at the wheel and they proved yesterday what we've been saying for many, many months is that they are so far ahead of any of these AI. They've been working on it for 15 years. They were probably just taking precautions because of the, you know, the risks that people are concerned about and the liability. But when ChatGPT jumped the gun, they said, well, we're not going to let them get out ahead of us. Let's just let it rip. And that's what they're doing. And that's why the stock's up so much in the last week. Good to see. Disney, on the other hand, I, um, not Eisner, Iger, uh, came in and basically said, uh, we, we need to be profitable. So he cut a lot of costs on the streaming side. They lost subscribers. The parks are through the roof. So the stock selling off in the short term back to where it was earlier in the year. I think this is fine for the long term. Uh, give it a couple of days to settle out and that one's uh, a-okay. Disney makes tough but necessary choices on streaming. So he's figuring that all out. They'll, they'll work it out. Alphabet strikes back at Microsoft. Keep in mind their China parks are just barely getting started uh, after the reopening. So there's going to be a whole slew of business coming back online. Uh, outside the streaming and inside the streaming, they have the ad supported, the non-ad supported. They'll figure it out. Uh, Alphabet strikes back. We covered that next. And by the way, we have a ton of Ask Me Anything questions. I know a lot of you like those. So we will be uh, covering that in detail. This was very interesting. This is two bullish signals suggest the S&P 500 could surge 19% to record highs over the coming year. Bank of America says. Now, this is the same Bank of America that kept telling you at 3,900 last year, we were going back to the October lows, uh, and instead we went up to 4,200. So take it for what it's worth. However, um, what they're talking about is the case for a higher S&P into year-end and early 2024. We agree. They're talking about 4,900, uh, which is pretty high, 19% upside, we're kind of in a 4,800 camp, which is also very high. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, how we get there uh, in the article of the week. But uh, this trend is like other wall of worry bullish turns in 2020, 2019, 2016, 2012. Uh, Stutmeyer is different from the person who said we were going back to 3,600. So this is a different analyst in the bank. So that's good. He said, breath is not bearish. Depending on the indicator, market breath is stabilizing to positive volume indicators. Our lackluster seasonality suggests may dip ahead of a summer rip. 
Uh, we're seeing that with this banking nonsense and this uh, debt ceiling we're going to have to worry about for the next two weeks until they extend it again for the 102nd time since World War II. Uh, credit spreads are benign and uh, need to stay on vacation for the summer rally. Bullish technical backdrop support the case for higher. Okay, so two specific signals center around breath or the rate participation in upside moves among the underlying security issues in the market. Upside breakouts for the weekly global advanced decline of 73 country indices tend to provide a bullish trend continuation signal for U.S. and global equity markets. This bullish indicator triggered a breakout in February, and that does not rule out S&P 500 4,900 into February of 2024. Uh, forward one-year returns after global breath broke out has led to average and median gains in the S&P 500 of about 19%. And the second signal flashed on March 31st when the New York Stock Exchange triggered its 34th breath thrust since 1930, which we covered in past podcasts. Uh, this indicator is calculated by taking the 10-day moving average of the number of advancing stocks divided by the number of advancing stocks plus the number of declining stocks. The calculation derives a percentage when it falls below 40% and then surges above 60% in 10 days or less. The indicator is triggered. The average median forward one-year returns after the breath thrust indicator are 18, between 18% and 21% respectively. If similar returns materialize this time around, that would send the S&P 500 to 4,800 to 4,900. So I give this guy credit for stepping out. We've been talking about this for some time. Uh, I like these two technical indicators he's using. We kind of get there a different way, but I think that that's not outside the realm of the poss possibility and being that no one is positioned for it. If anything, they're positioned in the exact opposite direction. It makes it more probable to happen because of the panic reversal that will be ensuing once we get going. Maybe it's through this debt ceiling. Maybe it's through the, the pause. Uh, earnings are getting better. We talked about that in the media spots. Um, okay, why the... Okay, this is the key article that came out yesterday from Nick Timoreos that caused the market reversal. And then um, it was squashed today when Pacific uh, West... Uh, Bank Corp indicated that they lost a bunch of deposits. This is going to keep happening until the Fed and the FDIC and the president wake up and do something about it. We've been saying this since it started last March. They think that they're going to stick their head in the sand and it's going to go away. It's not going to go away. It's a question of how many good banks do you want to lose? Uh, you know, first, I mean, these were not terrible banks. These were well-established banks. They <laughs> had five-year duration five and a half year duration on treasuries they got the deposits at the wrong time and then they had to reinvest it at the wrong time which is the way it always works uh and this was largely forced by the fed so they're gonna have to clean up their own mess the question is how many more need to fail and i think it's unnecessary thousands of employees will get laid off um local businesses will lose their banking relationship credit will tighten uh, it's completely unnecessary, and the and the ticket, implicit and explicit ticket to ultimately the taxpayer will just get higher the more they drag this uh, along. They think they're going to charge it all to the big banks. It's completely unrealistic. It's never going to happen. Maybe they'll do ten or twenty billion, uh, and then after that, it's going to be no mas, and uh, the officials that are pushing for that are going to find themselves out of power. So, um, moving on to China. Uh, China sees tourism and consumption rebound to 2019 levels in May vacation week. Um, 
About 247 million domestic trips were made during the holiday, the second longest holiday since COVID restrictions were lifted last December. So China domestic travel surged. This was 128.9% year-on-year increase. Um, the trains took about 120 million passengers. So depending which metric you look at, most of them are getting back to pre-pandemic. Some of them are above overall spending increased by 70% compared to the same period in 2019. That is just mind-boggling. That is from Alipay, China's largest digital payment platform. 70% uh, over 2019 levels is a big deal. And that's why you saw today uh, JD.com beat earnings. The stock was up 6%, but Alibaba was actually up more on the JD News um, off the same news. So uh, that's exciting to see because they report on May 18th. China said also said today they're willing to work with the U.S. on audit deal as challenges loom. So basically the PCAOB identified what they need to fix. The CSRC said we're going to fix it, uh, CRSC, and that's the end of the story. I mean, this is very positive. Um, it's saying that none of the deficiencies will, will cause any stock delisting. So it's telling us what we already knew. Now, this I found funny. SockGen, the most pessimistic bank uh, in the world, I would say, actually, yeah, it's in, it, it, it's, it's always the European banks and SockGen is the worst of the lot. These guys are saying that hedge funds are too pessimistic on stocks. I've never said, I've never seen in my entire history in the business, SockGen say someone else was too pessimistic, but that's exactly what they came out and said yesterday. Uh, and they said futures positioning is extremely bearish. Uh, hedge funds are shorter than they were in COVID, shorter than they were during the debt ceiling, uh, or about as short as they were during the debt ceiling in 2011, as short as they were in the 2015-16 correction, and shorter than they were in 2008 at the great financial crisis. And we all know those were huge chances to buy stocks and make a lot of money. SoftBank says goodbye to Alibaba. And hello to more AI investments. This guy just can't get enough of chasing tops. You know, he's selling the best diamond in his portfolio in Alibaba at the bottom. And he's chasing now uh, AI after a big run at the top. He did the same thing with WeWork. He did the same thing with all these uh, businesses that blew up on him that caused him to lose $32 billion last quarter. It's... it's uh, it's like the inmates are running the asylum. I mean, here's a guy who made a fortune, um, Masayoshi-san, over many years, and he's just uh, seems like committed to losing it all as quickly as possible in the last few years by continuing to bet on these non-profitable um, go-go stocks. So anyway, the point of this story is it's great because it's been Chinese water torture They've been selling off stocks every single quarter, selling off Alibaba stock because they had to, they had margin calls is basically what it comes down to. And they had to sell their, uh, you know, cut their flowers to water their weeds, so to speak. And now they're done. They're out of the stock and now the stock can go up. And I think this, this article may, may have effectively marked the bottom as, as Alibaba is now rallying. Uh, Alibaba cancels chief technology officer position, spins off in-house tech service provider in sweeping overhaul. So what this is 
saying is uh, they are really going ahead with unlocking shareholder value with the sum of the parts. Uh, there will no longer be a centralized uh, services to provide. These are all going to be IPO'd. And the parent, which is effectively going to be uh, right now Taobao, Tmall, uh, and uh, Allian, there's going to be six six different businesses. Uh, all of the ownership stakes in the underlying IPOs, which we're going to get into in the article of the week, will be retained by the parent. So you'll you'll still own these. They'll just raise capital at very high valuations for growth. And we'll be able to participate in all of those individuals and get the unlocked value and the higher multiples and the valuations on the individual businesses than, than in the conglomerate form. Uh, JD stock jumps on earnings beat. CEO is retiring. So it looks like it's up about 7%. That's good to see. That bodes very well. Some stuff on the U.S. market. This is from Seth Golden. This is about uh, earnings. We've talked about the percentage of S&P 500 companies with positive Earnings, positive three-month percent changes in forward earnings. That continues to climb. Everyone's so pessimistic. But what's happened in the last few weeks is estimates are going up. While everyone's sentiment and positioning is going down, estimates are going up. The other thing that I find very, very interesting, and this is critical for Cooper Standard, is that we're getting to this point of capitulation as it relates to small cap stocks. Why are small caps getting battered because of regional banks and because of energy? And I think what you're going to see here is it's the lowest it's been. The um, small cap index relative to the S&P 500, lowest it's been since the uh, pandemic lows. And you can see this rate of change that Seth put on the chart. Every time it's gotten this low, you've seen monster rebounds, and I think we're get we're right on the cusp here to see a rip your face off rally in small caps, obviously lower valuations, and we're participating just like we're participating in emerging markets through Alibaba. We're participating in small caps and cyclicals through Cooper Standard, uh, which we went over their earnings last week. Maybe we'll do a bit more on that next week. Uh, we did add some stock uh, where we were able to today. Uh, and very happy to do that. This is the uh, composite cycle from Ned Davis Research. I think we've covered this before, but it kind of gives you an indication of where we are uh, effectively in that pre-presidential cycle, third year of the presidential cycle year. We're kind of halfway up here. We've been we've been stalling sideways. I think we're going to break through this and continue higher through through midsummer. And just as everyone gets in, probably the end of July. Uh, much higher levels. We're, we'll then grind sideways. We'll have a eight or ten percent correction, then grind sideways for for many months before probably have a little bit of relief at the end of the year. Uh, so we're positioned for that. We're positioned for upside. Maybe this debt ceiling nonsense uh, uh, lasts for you know a little longer, and we get some downside volatility. We'll add where we can add, but I think your risk is to the upside more than it is to the downside, given that everyone's positioned for the downside right now. Moving along, we've got uh, PayPal. PayPal was very interesting. Um, they actually beat where the sell-off in the stock came back to earlier in the year levels, just like Disney, was on the basis. So they've got this private label business called Braintree, 
That's a lower margin business than their branded PayPal business. And that's the private label is growing 30%. Okay. So their overall business is growing. They took their, um, guidance up, but their margins down, uh, 100 basis margin growth down 100 basis points because this business is growing so fast that it's contributing, uh, it's, its overall contribution to margin takes margins down because it's making up a larger and larger part of the business. While this, the regular business is steady state growing at mid to high single digits. This new business is growing at 30%, albeit at lower margins. So it's going to take the overall margins down. I think the market's just absorbing. Keep in mind, you've got Elliott in the stock at probably a hundred dollars last summer as an activist. He's not going to take this, uh, sitting down. My guess is Shulman. This nonsense about we'll have an announcement on his successor by the end of the year. My guess is by the end of the month. And once they announce who that's going to be, I wouldn't mind um, the guy who ran T-Mobile, uh, John Lagar, like uh, whatever his name is. Uh, he was really good with and he's kind of the exciting energy that you would need to, to drive this thing to the next level. So uh, it would be pretty interesting if they took something like that. You'd see the stock up, you know, 15, 20 bucks in a day. We'll see what happens. That's just, I'm pulling it out. I'm sure they'll pick, whoever they pick is going to be exciting. But waiting till the end of the year, it's like, if you're going to fire someone, you know, mail them their stuff. I mean, that's what they're doing with all the work from homes. You, you don't say you're fired and, you know, in six months we'll figure out, you know, how you're going to leave. I mean, that never works out well. So, you know, you've got a CEO with his foot out the door and they're going to let him stay till the end of the year. Like, who who does that? And I would imagine Elliot is going to have a say in uh how quickly that nonsense gets uh uh taken care of. Uh this is from Ryan Dietrich, S&P was negative year on year for 12 months in a row before turning positive in April. Since 1950 there were eight other times that lasted a year or more before the streak ended. A year later all eight times uh S&P up 15% on average, so more good news there. Here's the article Heads Carolina Tails California Stock Market and Sentiment Results. Uh, if you've heard this song, I'm sure you love it as much as I do. This is from Cole Swindell. You can read about it on the website. As we've covered in recent weeks, the stock market as a whole is currently at the same levels today as it was 12 months ago and 24 months ago. It's like Groundhog Day. Every week we come and we say the same thing and draw the different lines. They just extend out further. You touch point, touch point, touch point, touch point, touch point, touch point. Uh, it just goes on and on. But uh, that's good. That's digesting and consolidating for two years the gains we made in one year um and um uh and now we're ready to move higher so it's interesting because if you look at this inverse head and shoulders here um what they call a measured move between the distance between the head and the Neckline, uh, that measured move, which in this case was 16.82%, you add the same amount for the target upside. And that actually takes you right to where that other analyst was talking about between 48 and 4,900 by early next year. And no one is looking for that. And that's why I think it's possible. So what has to happen? This turnaround in earnings estimates that I've been talking about for three, four weeks has to persist. And the Fed needs to stop, which... uh you know, Timoros is playing the um, uh, Fed whisperer, and he's not uh, denying that. So then he better have credibility in putting an article out like that, that it's true. Uh, in which case, if the Fed's out of the picture, 
and uh, the economy can uh, start to act the way it can act without the interference, uh, I think this is not outside the realm of uh, possibility here. So, um, ba -ba -ba -ba. we have spoken about the wall of worry. The market has been climbing since June and October lows. The worries never end, but the market pushes higher. Like Cole Swindell, it didn't matter whether they wound up in California or Carolina. The key was they were together. Our view is the market will push higher over time, regardless of the new worries, whatever it happens to be, Carolina or California, debt ceiling, nonsense, Russia, Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, regardless of the new worries that are thrown at it on a daily basis, the bad news was priced in last year down here, anticipating the slowness that we're seeing in the first half. Uh, last month, we worried the market was worried about earnings. They came in better than expected. Last week, the market was worried about the Fed. Powell implied we may be at a pause, and Tim Rose confirmed it. Just a few days ago, the market was worried about a recession. The jobs report shot the lights out to the upside. This week, the market was worried about high inflation. It came in lower than expected and the PPI dramatically lower than expected. Uh, next week, we'll worry about the debt ceiling. Guess what? They'll kick the can down the road and raise the limit just like they have 102 times since World War II. Um, so that was the Timoreos article. Then you look at inflation. The big number was the shelter, which is finally broken. That's going to be the key to the market. You can see the Relative importance at 34.58%. That's huge. Owner's equivalent rent is a significant portion. Now that the, um, if you actually look at this on the FedNow data, you'll see that once this turns, uh, it just, it just tanks. It, it takes a while, but it, it tanks quickly. Uh, and that's what's happened. The 12 month lag on the leases. And we've been talking about this for many, many months. Now, uh, currently, 40% of inflation components are now in deflation. If you go one by one through this long table, you'll see 40% of them are negative. And um, the chart below is the most important in this article. The CPI number reported on Wednesday was off of a low base, which which is much lower than the June base will be. So even if inflation were to run hot month on month through June at plus half a percent, uh, the year-on-year -year June inflation number could be as low as 3.4%, or about 3.5%. If inflation runs flat, meaning no month-on-month -month gain, we could see a two-handle, mid-twos. Mid I'm not calling for that, but it's not out of the realm. This is what I've been saying for months. Quote, watch what happens in May, June, and July inflation reports. And we got a taste of it. This week, we're going to get more and more coming forward. Uh, even the New York Fed is admitting... Uh, estimates at 4%, which would be nine, you know, nine tenths of a percent down from where we are now. Earnings, the stock market is a discounting mechanism. The weakness we're seeing in Q1 was discounted last year. Q1 earnings have been co coming well above expectations at negative 2.2% versus negative 6.7% just a couple of months ago, March 31st. This is the highest outperformance relative to expectations since Q4 of 2021. As a result of this dramatic beat, the market is recalibrating with new information and the result has been forward earnings expectations climbing in recent weeks following months of decline. So estimates are still up around 245 to 250, depending whose data you look at. You can read all of this stuff. As we said in December of last year on our podcast, watch consumer discretionary and consumer services. 
That's going to follow through till next year. You'll see they're going to have the highest earnings growth. What has the worst is energy this year. And we told you that in the fourth quarter while everyone was getting super hyper about energy at all time high at, at uh, recent highs. We said not for us and, and it hasn't recovered yet. So we'll wait for that to get completely pounded. And we, when people are despondent on it, we'll buy it for the next three to five years. We're not there yet. Um, you can see the estimates turning up, uh, earnings estimates, revenue estimates, uh, jobs better than expected. Labor force participation is the most important number in uh, the, the recent jobs report. As consumers spent down their excess savings from the pandemic stimulus, they're returning down to work. You can see this from $2 trillion now to half a billion dollars. This is key. Uh, this is critical for sustained recovery and a moderation of wage growth. More supply of labor equals less inflation from wages. And now they've got to go back to work. That's a good thing for them, for their self-worth, for the economy, for inflation, etc. Positioning is still pessimistic, which we talked about from even Sockgen says that it's too pessimistic. I can't believe Sockgen. They're always the most pessimistic on everything. My guess is they still have a 3,600 target on the S&P, and they're saying that hedge funds are too pessimistic. Uh, anyway, it's at levels where rip your face, where the pessimism is at levels where rip your face off rallies are born. Uh, you can see it back to 2015 to 2016. This is just another cut from Goldman Sachs. And then here's the commitments of traders, which we've talked about. This is hedge funds in red. Every time they get down this low, it's the beginning of a long-term rally. And uh, this time we think will be no different. Um, so here's where you can click on to check out the information about the Las Vegas Investment Masters Symposium. Um, China Alibaba valuation. This is very important. It got tucked away. So let me spend some time on it because I've gotten questions about this in recent weeks. You always do at the lows when everyone gets nervous and they say, oh, this isn't going to work, blah, blah, blah. And they just get caught up with all the noise and the headlines and the nonsense versus actually looking at the business. And that's why enormous amounts of money can be made. Markets are not efficient. Markets are inefficient. And if you can just keep your wits about you when everyone's crying and jumping out windows, uh, you can make a lot of money over time in this business. Now, key points on China. Um, S&P 10-year performance is 12.06%. Emerging markets is 1.8% uh, uh, per year. We're playing the reversion trade after 480% return from 2001 to 2007. The emerging market index has gone sideways for 16 years with no progress. Emerging markets outperform when the dollar weakens. We saw the first leg up from the October lows as the dollar peaked. Uh, U.S. dollar will trend lower in fits and starts as the Fed wraps up its tightening cycle, which may have already done. Uh, emerging markets index is China-Taiwan is 46% of the weighting. China demographics, which we've covered, largest percent of their population is 33 to 36 years old. If you look at history around the world, the biggest booms in stock markets by country are when that, that country's largest portion of the population is in family and housing formation. It lasts from the early 30s until about 40 years old when you hit a demographic cliff, which means we've got about four to seven more years of growth and a big stock market move before their toast like, like Japan was in 1989. Uh, China has been open, unlocked for just four months. GDP's exceeded expectations. They've had, on average, uh, low to mid-single-digit earnings growth since the pandemic started. Now it's ramping up. This year is going to be 18.1%. Next year is going to be 14.6% So uh, for 2024. 
that these are the highest numbers. So you're coming off 2.7%, 12%, 8%. Now we're jumping up to 18.1 and 14.6. You haven't seen numbers like that since uh, 2019 and then 2017. And if you go back and look, uh, those were times when Chinese stocks were ripping. Uh, what sectors are going to be the, the winners? Uh, information technology is going to grow net income by 39%, followed by consumer discretionary 35%. That's all you need to know. Alibaba fits in both of those categories, as well as real estate and utilities, but I wouldn't touch them with the 10-foot pole. Uh, you look at the multiple as 10 times forward versus the S&P at 18 and a half times forward. You tell me where you want to play. U.S. and China are interdependent. They'll have to work together to progress as nations. There's no, there's no decoupling. There's no unentangling. Just tell that to Apple. See, see how they would do if China shut them out tomorrow. Stock would be down 90% overnight. Uh, and, and take the S&P along with it. Credible experts put a, an invasion of Taiwan at five plus years out. If ever, Hang Seng price to book dipped below 1%. Last few times that happened, 1998, you had a 150% rally in 17 months in the Hang Seng, which is China tech-weighted. 2008, 110% rally. 2016, an 82% rally in 23 months. And 2020, a 36% rally in 11 months. In past video casts and podcasts, we've alluded to our sum of the parts analysis of Alibaba between $280 and $320 per share base case. Upside and multiple expansion could yield more. Now the market is confirming our long-held estimates and re as the restructuring takes shape to unlock the value. So Freshipo, you saw they're going to IPO it at a valuation of $10 billion. So we're just doing some of the parts here. The global online commerce, they're now rumored to be doing an IPO of that early next year at $39 billion valuation. That's Lazada and AliExpress, uh, which are not even profitable at this point. Um, uh, Kainal, the logistics business, they're going to IPO at $2 billion. Ant Financial Group, uh, that was expected to go public at 310. The, it got shelved. You cut that valuation in half to 150, even though the business is growing, uh, which it will finally get, um, um, recognized for once it actually IPOs, which if you remember, it's probably a 12 month delay from the change of control that happened three months. So that's a next year thing. You own a third of it as an Alibaba shareholder. I'm conservatively valuing that at $50 billion stake. Then you've got the domestic China online commerce, Tmall and Taobao, which is, a, in my view, uh, it's nine times larger than the international commerce business. International commerce did $9.6 billion of revenue last year. The China commerce did $93 billion of revenue. International loses money. Uh, domestic makes a ton of money. We've got that valued at $390 billion or 10 times the international business. Allian, we've got valued at $2,200 billion. We get there. We've gone through this before. Uh, very simply, the, the cloud, they're the leader in cloud. Um, they are where AWS for Amazon was in 2016. China's digitization is five years behind, plus behind the U.S., uh, AWS was doing 12 billion in 2016 with low operating margins. Uh, by 2021, it was doing 62 billion with high operating margins, 29% operating margin. McKinsey expects China's public cloud market to triple in size by 2025. So that would be 32 billion in 2021 to 90 billion by 2025. You can read the article there. Alibaba with a 36% share. 
would wind up with $33 billion of that at a 29% operating margin at scale. That's $10 billion of new operating income for Alibaba. This compares to its total operating income of 15.2 or uh, peak operating income at 16.7 billion when the stock traded at $319 in the US. Um, you'd be adding another 60% of operating income to its peak price uh, at uh, multiple at 319 uh, on the USADS. So at a peak multiply, that implies a $500 stock, assuming no growth in China or international commerce. Cut that in half to be conservative. You're still over $250 by 2025. Uh, and, and the miscellaneous, the digital media, media, the local consumer services and innovation business at $15 billion. Uh, plus you got cash, by the way, which also gets no value at $70 billion. So in total, you add the cash, 70 billion plus 15 billion plus, uh, uh, for the miscellaneous for 200 billion for the Alley Cloud plus 50 for the Ant plus 390 for the T-Mall plus two for the Kainau plus 39 for the Lazada International and plus 10 for the HelloFresh. And you got $776 billion. Uh, that works out to about $301 per share. This assumes multiples do not expand back to peak levels and growth, excluding Allian, remains at subdued COVID levels. So our assumption is that even though we're done with COVID, we grow as slow as we grew during COVID, okay, which is very unlikely, as we're already seeing after 12 weeks. So uh, I just want to keep that in perspective, how I'm getting to these numbers. We'll have way more upside if you believe growth ret will return to the core business and multiples will expand. Uh, we actually do believe that. Uh, but this is the most important thing because a lot of people say, oh, well, what about China's going to invade Taiwan because they need the semiconductors? Well, guess what? If you believe that China will invade Taiwan in the next five years, then you have a lot more to worry about than Alibaba. Apple will be cut in half by at least if that scenario were, were to play out. Uh, as the bulk of their supply chain and their cheap labor and a meaningful part of their growth story is out of China. So if you have China going to Taiwan, they're toast, uh, which means the S&P is toast, which means your 401k is toast. And the last thing you'll be worried about at that point is Alibaba because you'll be in World War III. Uh, the impact to the S&P 500 would be equally significant. It is not a sensible reason to avoid Alibaba. If you have that concern, you should avoid almost every stock, whether they're Chinese or otherwise. Uh, this is opinion, not advice. But you just have to kind of take the emotionalism out of these decisions because you see it in the headlines and I get all these stupid questions and comments. And it's just like, you know, do you do you guys like can you just step back and actually deal with the data and the facts? Have a little patience. This, you know, they don't you. If someone gave you a trillion dollars, you couldn't replicate what they've built up in China and the moat that they have in their Chinese business. So let the doors open. They've been open for three, four weeks already after three, four months. Already after three, four months, JD showed you what can happen overnight. Uh, Alibaba's in a much better position than JD because as we covered two weeks ago, uh, Alibaba has all the clothing and all the stuff that's selling. Uh, JD had... Um, uh, different category. Oh, I think it was Pinduoduo they were talking about that had the agriculture, etc. The point is, we're in the right place at the right time. Alibaba reports M earnings on May 18th. If this is valuable to you, this is the seasonality. Uh, Alibaba stock tends to perform very well. This is since its IPO 
on average, it tends to have its best period of performance between May and uh, September. So we'll see if that holds true this year. Uh, now on to the shorter term view of the general market. Uh, investor sentiment is slowly improving, but the retail investor is still worried. That's good. Climb the wall of worry. Uh, fear and greed is um, improving. And then the National Association of Active Investment Managers uh, is at 65%. So still more room on the upside there. You're seeing the insider buying in uh, regional bank stocks, 300,000 from East West Bank Corp. Uh, we're not in any individual. We're in the basket one, uh, during, we bought some during the flush out last week. And um, same with U.S. Bancorp, which was covered in the Barrons. Here are industrial top 30 weights of the industrial sector. Um, the cumulative 2023 earnings power of these three 30 stocks was revised up by 1.57% in the last 60 days. And 2024 estimates rose 1.17% in the last 60 days, rather, six, last two months. So while everyone has got their head under the covers and, and their head in the sand, uh, these businesses are slowly improving. What's not improving, what everyone was chasing at the end of last year when we said not for us, which is energy. Uh, earnings estimates fell by 11.65% for this year in the last 60 days and 8.23% for next year. Uh, skate to where the puck is going. That was what we've pounded over and over. Consumer discretionary, communication services, infotech, etc. All the stuff that no one wanted last year. Moving along, uh, some of the key data this week, you've heard more than enough about it. The CPI came in at 4.9% year on year. The PPI today uh, blew the doors off to the downside. It came in at 2.3% uh, versus 2.4%. Just take a look at this chart is completely mind boggling um, how much this thing has rolled over. It's it's almost going negative at the pace it's it's collapsing. Uh, and the Fed is still debating whether they should stay in the market. Anyway, um, all right, let's move on to the Ask Me Anything questions. We got quite a few this week, more than quite a few. Gosh, I hope some of these are from last week because this is a lot of questions. Um, okay. Tom, thank you for your continued great work. Been sharing this podcast to as many people as I can. By the way, uh, if you're getting value from this, thank you for listening. The best compliment you could pay me is do share it with one person you know who loves the markets uh, today. Just send them the link. Say, hey, I know you follow markets. I found this helpful over the years. You may too. If not, don't watch it. Uh, but uh, that's how this thing grows. And the more people that are involved, the more I'm going to want to keep doing it uh, for free. <laughs> so uh, I'll always do it for my clients. I'll, I'll probably always do it for the trade service people as well. Uh, but um, if you want to keep taking advantage of this, make sure it grows. Uh, moving right along. All right. So thank you for that, Andrew. Following up on your Emerging Markets China update from the article of the week, ebbs and flows of EM versus U.S. stocks under overperformance is interesting. Are you interested in a basket of emerging market stocks or maybe an ETF? Uh, or do you think the best way is to stick with individual plays such as BABA and let the rising tide lift all boats? Uh, I just think... Um, and I continue to think that there is no better margin of safety business in the world right now in terms of what you pay and what you get. The framework that I use to 
own Alibaba is a framework that has made me millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of dollars over the years. Uh, so even when the framework takes longer to work out over time, um, the framework is still the framework. Okay. So the data would have to dramatically change, but the margin of the data could change a lot because the margin of safety is so great. It could change a lot to the negative. I think it's going to change a lot to the positive. Uh, but it's been bought with such a meaningful margin of safety that, you know, why would I buy, um, you know, basket, emerging market basket, then I've got to own Brazil. I've got to own a bunch of other stuff that I don't really want. Um, when I could own the best business at the lowest price in the world, in my view, it's, I don't think there's another business out there that has such a sustainable moat that's trading at such a discount to intrinsic value. That's taking the steps to unlock that value and conditions are lining up for that value to be realized. So, um, that said, if you don't have that confidence, then I think that'll work. Um, and, uh, and I don't think that's a problem either. So Paul Falcone, as always, I appreciate your views and thought process is probably the most important question you'll get today. How did you play at Torrey Pines <laughs> and where does it rank in your top courses played? Thank you. I'll tell you, that was just an unbelievable experience. I didn't know what to expect. It was Torrey Pines South. They have South and North. South, basically every hole is on the water overlooking. You've got the cliffs. It's the most gorgeous thing ever. I think I showed enough of those photos. Um, anyway. Yeah, I don't know if. I know I showed a lot of photos of the kids. Can I show any photos of that? Yeah, I did not show photos of that. All right. Um, well, that's good. I showed photos of everything but Tory Pines. Anyway, uh, maybe I'll show it next week. Uh, there was not a bad lie on the entire course. I couldn't believe it. Number one, I did play well. I got matched up with a treasurer of a public company, really nice guy from Chicago, uh, and then a business owner from uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and his son. Everyone were, were good golfers. I hit the ball extremely well. I didn't score, but I, I definitely played well. Uh, felt really good coming off and had a wonderful day. One of the best ever. So, uh, if you can get out there, I highly recommend you do. And you can walk on. They just make you wait for an hour, hour and a half, and you go hit some balls and have some breakfast or whatever. It was great. Uh, Max Lumens, um, was wondering what you think about Rhythm Capital. It's a REIT that focuses on not only residential real estate, but also loan services, financial services. Been tracking it for a year and bought in last year October. I know it will not be for you too young and maybe not the highest quality in its field. However, my premise was that even when interest rates go up, people still remain to buy real estate only at a lower price, but still would use their services and without the risk that their portfolio would be devalued. And now as a result from that recent earnings call, they seem to be ready to take advantage of deals in the market. Have a great day and been learning a lot from you over these podcasts all right max let me take a look at this so i'm glad you know that there's a good chance it's not going to be for me um you know I've, I've just seen a lot of these low quality reits come and go over the years and they're usually just promotes for management um i mean this has been around for a little while um let's see see if I can pull something up here. 
I just, you know, for me, uh, I'm a generalist, so I'm always going to go for the highest quality where there's the most dislocation. That's the game I play. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't gamble on the lower quality when I don't have to. I could get the same returns with the best jockeys in the business and not have to worry about this stuff. Uh, Mortgage-related servicing assets. I, I mean, if you're going to play this game, I would look at um, Annalee. I would look at uh, Penny Mac. I'd look at Mr. Cooper. Uh, go higher up on the food chain. This kind of thing. Let's take a look. All right, so the peak income interest and dividend was 1.6 billion. It's now down to 1.1 billion. EBITDA net income is down 66%. See what cash flow is doing. Balance sheet. Um, yeah, their investments are down materially too. And then you have to see got convertible preferred stock. So you got to look at that prospectus and see is that dilutive to the equity if it's convertible and if so at what price? Um, the value per share is 11 bucks, so it's trading at uh, it's eight. I don't know. You know, these are complex when they're doing. Mortgage-backed securities, you really have to know what you're doing. For me, as a generalist, that's not a game I want to play. Uh, let's see, mortgage servicing-related assets, residential securities and loans, and consumer loans. This is your risk right here, your consumer loans. Because with rates up so high, you're seeing all this consumer stuff at the low end, This the subprime uh, risky debt, it's blowing up, all this buy now, pay later, all the used car loans. Uh, all the stuff at the poorest end of society, consumer loans, unsecured stuff, that's all blowing up. So you have no way of knowing what their book looks like. You're just hoping for the best, and it might be fine. I would really do research on the uh, guys running it or the gals running it, find out what success they've had in the past and how long they've been with the company and um, how they've managed through cycles. And this just doesn't give me enough of that information. I wouldn't even, personally, I wouldn't even take a punt on this. Um, but... I understand why you're looking at it. I think your thought process is okay, but I think there are enough landmines in there that you could get hurt and not even know why. Um, and if you make it, the upside is not big enough to take that level of risk in my in my view. Uh, maybe in the in the perfect scenario, world of worlds, you could have a double. I doubt it. Even in a perfect scenario, you're probably up 50%. You can buy high-quality businesses and make triples uh, with more patience and um, so on and so forth. Okay, Bob Main, Tom, really enjoy your weekly podcast and congratulations to the girls for their successful swim season. I'm debating whether I should increase my position in Alibaba before any IPOs are announced 
or maybe it will not make any difference. I, I don't know. I have no idea what your portfolio looks like. You know, where I'm at 20, 22% in the portfolios that I'm at that level, we, that's where we cap out. And that's, you know, that's a limit for us. Um, but, um, I, I can't speak for what you should do, but in portfolios that, that we had space, we, we were adding recently. So, um, that's all you need to know. Kenneth, uh, Tom, love the show. What are your thoughts on coherence? C-O-H-R. I've noticed famed investors Michael Burry, quite pessimistic, and Ken Griffith of Citadel have picked up this company in their latest 13Fs. They have beat quarter over quarter, and the share price has been going down. I feel like it's a no-brainer, but there might be more under the hood. Uh, Citadel, you can't really tell anything because they're basically a trading shop. So uh, I wouldn't make anything of that. Michael Burry, when he goes long on something, it has to be have a what is perceived to be a very large margin of safety because he's by nature a, a real pessimist um, and made all of his money shorting the subprime. And since then mixed smart guy, you got to listen to him, but um, you know, there's been no act two. let's just put it that way for the time being. Um, but I do pay attention when he goes into longs because he does do detailed work and um, let's take a look. Okay, compound semiconductors and photonic solutions, optical assemblies, da 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 da. Uh, okay, so U.S. government prime contractors, U.S. government agencies. Okay, so in the short term, it certainly got the overhang around the debt ceiling, like some of the defense stocks have been trading down. So that will be a catalyst that will be resolved to the upside. Uh, let's take a look here. Revenues have been growing meaningfully. Margins have Gross margins have been compressing a little bit, so no one likes that. This is a big mar margin compression from 40% to 33% gross margins. Uh, that's a sign of either competition or maybe it's a one-off here, so you can take a look at that. Um, they lost money in the most last 12 months. So you got to find out what is that. Is it a one-off or a recurring change in business? Did they lose a major client? What's going on? Why did they take such a precipitous downturn? That's why, obviously, the stock's down. Um, balance sheet is okay. Cash flow looks okay. So they had this big one-off on sale of property, plant, and equipment. Okay, so that might be related to that. Cash from financing. Looks like they did. They paid back some debt. Free cash flow yield is pretty anemic, even historically. Um, Mid-single digits compounder, so it's not really a great business, and margins are compressing. So you got to get comfort. Why are margins compressing? Um, I mean, they were okay through last year, I guess, and then they really fell off. So what has changed, and is it a temporary or a permanent impairment? That's what you need to figure out. And if you can get clarity that is a temporary impairment, you may have a great opportunity here. I mean, the stock's down to 30 bucks from 100 bucks. Um, let's see what our estimates.
So it's expected to grow. Free cash flow. Yeah, you just have to figure out whether that impairment is temporary or permanent. Um, I think this one definitely warrants more study. Let me just take a look here if uh, All right. So thanks, Kenneth. I think we're going to move on. Let's see. Let me just see if I can find something on this. Uh, okay, so it's a small cap, no dice. All right. Um, this is from Mohammed Al Otaibi. Hi, Tom. I'm a petroleum engineer at Saudi Aramco. Received a new hard hat and wanted to share with you the competitive advantage a company like 3M has. Great investment idea. Regards, Mohammed, and he sent pictures of his new 3M hard hat. So thanks for sending that. Um, Brady Todaro, in your hedge fund strategy, are there any positions you're short? I've been listening to your podcast weekly for the last few years, unless you didn't notice you say it, but are there any positions you've shorted? We never discuss short positions publicly, number one. Uh, number two, this is not the time to be short in the market, in our view. Um, does Scott's Miracle Grow fit the fundamentals of a company like 3M and Intel that would attract you to consider it? Uh, Scott's Miracle Grow has been upgraded recently due to supply chain issues easing. It was an all-time high of 250 in April 2021, now currently at 70. Uh, could possibly double, like you say. Uh, yes, I've looked at this one. Um, we haven't done anything with it, but uh, it's on the it's on the radar. Um, there were a couple things I couldn't get across the line with, and then it ran away a little bit. So, you know, if it were to come back down to 60 or 50, I, I might have another look at it again, but, uh, uh, we haven't done anything with it yet. So, okay, moving along here, we've got, uh, Bob Johnson. Would like you to comment on a few data points on China. Number one, U.S. investors pull equities from China from April 28th. Number two, Bloomberg reported that the China MSCI fell 2.6% on April 25th, which is the worst performance for April since 2004. Number three, the Bloomberg article calls for optimism as this fund manager sees 20% earnings growth in Q2. How might you balance these negative and positive data points? This is all noise and nonsense. You you buy a business on the basis of fundamentals where you believe there's a large enough margin of safety and you ignore all the noise. I mean, that's the key. You, you use the noise to your benefit to get people who are puking out on the basis of that nonsense uh, and you buy good quality businesses with moats when they're temporarily impaired. That's how you, that's how you deal with that. Um, Raza R says, uh, I've been looking into two REITs on discount. One is your VNO, the other is IIPR. They're totally different industries. Could you do a quick look at IIPR? I don't know why everyone's into these like no-name tiny little REITs. Like take something that's been around for a while that's gone through the great financial crisis and lived to tell the story. I mean, things down from 263 down to 60 bucks. Um, 
take a quick look. I mean, PR, let's see. You know, a lot of these industrials, particularly the warehouses, they were bought with, all right, so it's continued to grow. Let's see, what are we, oh, we're on estimates. Okay, let's get to actuals. Yeah, this is too new for me. Um, I'll leave that to someone else to, to bet on management. I mean, it looks like it's growing. Looks like everything's moving in the right direction. The one thing I will say, uh, everything looks pretty good. Let's see, cash from investing. So they did a lot of purchasing in 20 and 21, which was kind of um, peak prices and most compressed cap rates. So I think you're going to get caught off sides here. And I'll bet this is all like warehouses. Let me take a look. Um, uh, ownership uh, specialized property leases to experience state license operators for their regulated medical use cannabis facilities. And it has to be taxed as a real estate investment trust. So they're doing medical use cannabis facilities. This is a very niche business and runs very cyclically. Uh, it's probably down because the cannabis industry is down and it's going to trade on the basis of legislation. I think the long game probably works. The, the question is, do you get stopped out in the meantime if it's not a perfectly run business? Uh, for me, that would be a hard pass because uh, I don't know it and I'm not going to get specialized in, in that area of the, of the market. Um, not for me. Quick question. What will happen? Oh, here we go. Michael Colucci, local uh, Westchester guy. I appreciate your weekly podcast. Let me know if you ever want to play the links. Yes, I will. <laughs> I will. Uh, classic link style course close to home. What will happen to my options contract when Baba splits? Well, as it stands right now, uh, first off, I would just own the stock. But as it stands, um, these the way they're going to restructure the company is to IPO the individual units so they can raise capital for growth, number one. And number two, uh, achieve uh, market valuations that they have been they have not been afforded operating in the conglomerate format. Why is that? Because the losers, the ones that are losing money, are offsetting the ones that are minting cash hand over fist. And they want each to get individual uh, uh, valuations. So you, as an owner of BABA, will own the individual pieces of the individual IPO companies. And in the beginning, they're probably going to retain like 80, 90% of the shares. And the way you get the high valuations is you only offer a small amount of float. So maybe they'll float 5 to 10% of the company and keep the stock scarce. So you have people bidding like crazy for it and you bid up the valuations at IPO and then in the secondary market as the market gets hot and you're going to have a piece of that. And that's all going to accrue because as a BABA owner, you'll still own 80% of that other business, that other ticker. Uh, you'll just own it through Alibaba. And there may be some tax-free spins in which case you get some type of stub option, but for the most part, uh, I think it's going to be pretty straightforward as as with the information that we have right now. But I, I would just own the stock. Uh, Zivco and small small options as a kicker. Uh, Zivco 
Kanazirsky. Thanks for all the great videos. After the recent decline of PayPal, companies seem strong. Continue growing, increased guidance, big buybacks, insiders buying, no debt. Market is hating it down to 65, pretty cheap valuation. I would like to also ask for Brookfield Corp. Seems cheap compounder that you can hold for the long term. So Brookfield is probably down because they gave one of their buildings back to the lenders. Um, I think Brookfield is probably a better bet than some of the others that were proposed today. Let's see here. Yeah, they've been around for a while. Uh, higher quality. Um, see what segment they're in uh real estate renewable power infrastructure venture capital private equity i mean yeah this is a conglomerate you got to figure this out i mean they're doing everything under the sun control buyouts financially distressed carve outs recapitalizations convertible senior resident i mean this is so opaque i could never figure this business out so that's why i would never invest in it but um i believe the operators are high quality so uh, I would probably have a little more comfortable comfort owning this business than something else. The key is you don't really have much upside margin of safety. I mean, even if you got back to peak levels, which you're not going to for, for a couple of years, you're not even looking at a double. Um, so you got to play this for the long game. But I will say every time you've gotten these major corrections, uh, it's paid to be a long-term owner. Let's take a look here. Uh, you know, the good is the enemy of the better. The better is the enemy of the best. So in the case of this, um, yeah, cash. you're probably okay with these operators. I would think it could go a little lower before you get a, a rebound. It's a medium quality. It seems to have good management, but it's uh, complex to understand what you actually own. I like to know what I own. I, I like to be able to see it, feel it, touch it, understand it. Uh, that's why I'm in simple businesses. This seems to own a little bit of everything. So you're effectively owning an index fund, uh, but, uh, it, it should be okay. And I think it's, uh, probably pretty clever in the sense that you have a sense of how they operate through different cycles and you've got a lot of diversification, you've got good management and it'll probably be okay. I just don't know if the downside risk is worth, uh, worth it for the upside that's afforded in a reasonable amount of time like two to three years over the long term this could be a many multi-bagger so uh let's see do they pay you anything while you wait the dividend's probably okay Um, it's not coming up i'm sure they have a dividend that's why you're looking at it so i think that one's okay it's kind of vanilla it's kind of boring uh it'll probably work but uh, i think there are better places where you have higher upside for the same level of risk uh with that said i want to thank everyone for tuning in we'll be back next week same time same place in the meantime make it a great one bye for now